I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 106 of the Overcast, the Seattle Times news and politics podcast. We're back after a few weeks off. We had a little hiatus because of some vacation, some virus, and a little bit of scheduling difficulty, but we're back in action this week. And we're with Fiona Devil, a Seattle Times Project homeless reporter who recently penned a great story about people who are repeatedly booked into jail, often for property crime or drug offenses, and who are struggling with serious mental illness and chemical dependency issues. She focused on a program called Vital that's meant to break that cycle. Thanks for joining us, Fiona. Thanks for having me. So tell us about how you came to write this story, which I think, did it run, was it last week? Did you start out looking at the problem that has been in the news a lot lately with people who are repeatedly cycling in and out of, you know, the justice system? Or did you sort of have an idea just to look at this program that you knew already existed? You know, we had been, like, this issue has been in the news a lot lately, obviously, because of the Como documentary, Seattle's Dying, and because of um, a report that the Downtown Seattle Association released um, on prolific offenders, these repeat offenders going in and out of the jail. We had actually talked about this story as a team months before that. Um, in late last year, we decided this year we wanted to try to focus more on pipelines into homelessness. So, you know, what are the upstream causes? That's what they're often referred to of homelessness, and obviously people revolving in and out of the criminal justice system is one of them. So my boss, Jonathan Martin, who's our editor of Project Homeless, had actually heard about this program um, through some folks at King County. Um, He'd actually heard about the initial initiative, which is called Familiar Faces, which is this much broader kind of idea of of looking at who are these the systems that all of these people touch, and Vital is a smaller outgrowth of that program. So I was, he, he said, can you look into familiar faces? And I said, okay. And then from there, I was like, oh, this vital program is actually the, the thing that's actually doing the thing where they're actually working with people. Um, but it's, I discovered, it's like, oh, but it's also very, very small, which I guess is, is part of the story. Yeah, and we'll get to the details of the vital program in a second. But just to set the scene, your story um, started off by, not by saying, there's this program called Vital. It started off uh, by introducing a woman named uh, Lanya Neely, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. That's perfect. Uh, and, and then you described sort of her journey, and I'm just going to read the way you started the story because I think it paints that picture. Uh, so Lanya Neely stood on the sidewalk, upset in crisis and surrounded by disarray. She had knocked down bikes, tossed safely grocery carts into the street, and ripped plants from their pots, smashing them on a Capitol Hill sidewalk. A car was following her, she told police. It wasn't the first time she'd made that kind of claim, an officer noted in the police report of the January 2018 incident. She is transient and has numerous contacts for mental health incidents. The same officer wrote in 2016 after Neely allegedly struck a man in the head with a chain when he stumbled upon her sleeping behind his garage. Now, like all the times before, the officer turned to the one option readily available to him. He arrested her. So that's pretty dramatic. And what was going on with her at that time? So um, this was before she had been enrolled in the VITAL program. And this was a pretty, at least according to the arrest records, a pretty rough period for Lanya starting, I think, around 2015 or so, 2016. She had numerous arrests um, every year for typically, again, misdemeanor offenses. Um, I think she racked up 16 arrests from 2016 through 2018 for that kind of offense. 
two more times she was arrested for for noncompliance, like not making a court date, that kind of thing. Um, so she was in uh, a constant state of of disarray. I mean, she was she was homeless. She'd been homeless for years. She was sleeping in doorways. She wasn't really living in tent camps. She had in the past, and she was sort of in a full mental health crisis that she has herself said was exacerbated by drug use, methamphetamines. Specifically, she had used other substances as well. And so as she describes it later, it's like a freight train when you're in the middle of this sort of state. You can't really, you don't really know what's happening. She was hearing voices. And so as she said it, if you were talking to her, she wouldn't hear you. She would hear the voice in her head. And so she was having these interactions with police and with random people. And they were consistently, this is just one police report, but there were numerous ones that I could have chosen. So, so you wrote that the, the option available most of the time for officers was to arrest her. And yet, of course, the story was about this other program that becomes available. So can you explain how, how she got into this program that maybe led, and it led to a better outcome, as your story talks about? Okay, so the VITAL program started in 2016. And, and the way it works was, you know, basically the county would get... The, the county put together this team of different systems folks, so case managers, criminal justice folks, prosecutors, who would get a list of people, I think every week, that potentially fit the profile of the program. And the profile of the program are folks who've been arrested at least four times in a year in two of the last three years. And so repeat offenders and also have sort of a mental health substance abuse issue. So she qualified for that. So they basically she was in jail for this incident in January of 2018. Um, and while she was there, the vital systems folks basically would have gotten her name on a list and said, OK, she qualifies. So why don't you, a case manager, go in there to the jail because most vital clients are enrolled while in jail and um, see if she's willing to participate. This is not a forced program. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. And so they went in the jail. Apparently it was through one of those, you know, it wasn't even a face-to-face interview. It was through the the glass with the phone, you know, like you were visiting someone in jail. And this case manager, um, Jordan Ramsdell, said, hey, I'm from Vital. Here's what this is. Here's what we can offer you. Do you want to participate? And um, remarkably, Lanya said yes, because um, I think a lot of people maybe in that state don't really necessarily always understand what's being offered to them. And um, she said yes. And from there, she was in the program. But the thing I'll note is that even if you're in the program, it doesn't mean that you're checking in every week. It's not that kind of program. Like You may not be as interactive at first. And she wasn't. They said that in her initial months, she was a little more distant. She didn't stay as in constant contact. But that evolved over time. Uh, And so this was, uh, you know, we're getting into one person's story. But uh, how many people are, are dealing with this? you know, citywide, it's a, it's a visible problem. Right. Uh, if, and I think you wrote, if you live in or visit Seattle, you've probably seen someone like Neely experiencing the debilitating effects of mental illness or substance abuse in public spaces. Um, so how, how common is this? I think anyone who's living or working in Seattle knows that to an extent this is common. Folks who are dealing with mental illness that potentially could be exacerbated by drug use, so obviously not always, because we're, if, you're, if you're living or working or walking around Seattle, you're encountering people, um, I think, on a daily basis who are experiencing this. The Familiar Faces Initiative that led to the VITAL program, they did a study and analysis of 2013 and 2014 booking data in King County jails. And they found that about uh, 1,200 or so unique individuals 
in both of those years fit that criteria of the four times at least arrest a year plus the mental illness plus the chemical dependency. So I think it's clear that we're talking about a significant number of people. More than a thousand people, but you know, not in the many, many thousands of people. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not talking tens of thousands of people. And oh, and I should also add that um, of those 1,200, more than half were homeless, which they think was probably an undercount. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one way you can look at it is what, you know, what percentage of the people who are in our jail system at any given time are people who are prolific offenders or who are cycling through over and over again? Another thing is that you know, some of these folks may be among the most visible of the homeless population. Right. And what a lot of people who live and work in the city think of when they think of the word homeless. But that doesn't mean that they're most of people who are homeless. Right. So right. That, those are, I guess, two things to think about, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I feel like I, guess I don't know how much on this podcast you know, you'd like to talk about the reporting process, but I feel a lot of what we're doing on Project Homeless is just trying to educate everyone about like what it means it's you know you wish you could have a glossary of terms that went with every story that's like this is what it means to be homeless and this is you know these are all the people this is the array of people that can be homeless you know in the last king county point in time count which is a one night snapshot of homelessness um more than 50 percent of people who were homeless were unsheltered so those are people that don't have basically a, a traditional roof over their heads but that means a lot of people were sheltered and so those are people you know, who are in shelters, there are people who are, um, that, that you can't see, right? Like those are their families, there are people that are not suffering from drug abuse or mental Staying illness. Staying with friends. Uh... Staying with friends. I mean, then we get into like a technical definition because HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development, doesn't consider it doubled up technically homeless unless it's a temporary situation, but Department of Education does. I know your listeners may not want all the nitty gritty, but like it just shows that there's a lot of shades of gray when it comes to what it means to be homeless. But you're completely right. What we think of is what we see and what we see on the bus that maybe makes us nervous. And that person, by the way, I should say this, who maybe is having a mental um, illness episode or drug-induced episode or both, they may not actually be homeless. Right. They may like, be we don't know too. that. Um, Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. Right. So the vital program is is trying to help people, a specific population of people like you already sort of described, who are cycling through the criminal justice system. And many of them are homeless, but they may, may, may not be homeless. Right. Um, okay. And have we as a, as a city, as a, an area, struggled to deal with um, that population and their issues in, in the past? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... Um... I think probably you could say every city in the United States right now is struggling to deal with these issues um, because of, you know, the crumbling mental health system across the country. Washington, obviously, Washington state has its own special relationship with the mental health system and has had its own struggles, right, with mental health system. I'm not an expert in Western State Hospital, but, you know, there's obviously a huge lawsuit filed against them. You know, they're facing tons of settlements and just sort of a lack of capacity so yeah, and, and at the city level, um, we definitely struggle. Criminal justice level, they struggle. You know, Pete Holmes, the city attorney, and Dan Satterberg, the King County prosecutor, have both, and I know Pete Holmes was just on your podcast, um, have talked about broadly what is the responsibility of the criminal justice system. And, and I would say broadly, I think their argument is that it cannot be the sole responsibility of the criminal justice system to deal with folks experiencing these um, illnesses. 
but it often becomes their problem. And that's the big tension in the city right, right. now. I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But getting back to Vital, sure. I, I'm really curious, and your story sort of traced how it helped this uh, the woman that you profiled, but how did the process go? You said that she, at first, didn't want to be in contact as much, and this is a voluntary situation. So right. what what is the program specifically doing, you know, in her case and in other cases that... I think your story said is more has been more effective or it has been effective in helping people get on a more stable path. I mean, one other thing that interests me a lot, I mean, so there's there's the case management team um, that is based out of REACH, which is actually not far from where we're sitting right now. It's um, REACH is a, an outreach program uh, based in Belltown or they have some their main offices in Belltown. And so that is kind of the hub of a lot of the vital team. So her case manager was there. Um, an occupational therapist was there, a nurse was there. Some of these are actually employed by Harborview uh, Medical Center, but they'll work out of the REACH offices a few times a week. And so vital clients can go there basically on those days that they're there and check in. Um, And that can mean for a variety of things. Um, Before Lanya was on medication, she could just go and check in and say, I, you know, I, my hand is hurt, right? One of the days I was at REACH doing this story, a man just sort of walked in randomly who was a vital client who had a deep wound on his hand. So the nurse was treating that. Um, they can talk to the case manager about all kinds of things um, in their life. And the goal in the beginning particularly is to just to build trust in the sense of there are people here from you and we're not forcing you to do a certain thing because we know that hasn't worked in the past. Um, initially, Lanya um, didn't always come into the REACH offices. Her case manager would meet her where she was at. Um, so that meant street corners, where she was living, either in the U District or in Capitol Hill, in front of a Rite Aid, like wherever they could meet to just sort of talk about how she was doing, what her needs are. Um, but the other thing that fascinates me about this program is the fact that the prosecutors are involved. So you have both the King County Prosecutor's Office and um, the City Attorney's Office who have attorneys specifically assigned to this program. So if any one of the 60 people in the vital program is arrested, that is flagged for the Prosecutor's Office and the um city attorney's office. So they will know pretty quickly um, that Lanya was arrested. And so then they can alert her case management team and say, hey, we've got a situation. So the prosecutors flag it when they see it come in and then they go tell the case, the case. Right. If the case managers don't already know, which often they're, they're probably not going to, they'll, they'll alert the whole team. Cause there's also folks at Plymouth housing. There's the folks at King County. Cause that's sort of the overall umbrella for the program. So that they can let them know, hey, we need to be prepared to deal with this. And so, I mean, what was the outcome in Lanya's case? What, she, what, is the, what, what did they help her achieve? She, so she was arrested several more times um, after enrolling in Vital. She was enrolled in January, or actually maybe February, after the January arrest last year. She was arrested again in June for sure twice, August, September, she was checking in with the Vital folks at that time, kind of building relationships. And after her September arrest, she went to Vital. She met with one of their um, nurses and said, I'm ready for medication. And she, that day, got her first dose of a monthly antipsychotic uh, drug. And she's been on it ever since. And she has not been arrested since. And so, and she's continuing to check in with her Vital case managers. She when she does have a phone, because that's an issue often for folks, um, she is texting with them. That for them, by the way, is that's how they measure. That's one of the ways they measure success. Like, oh, she's reaching out to us. She's telling us 
about the victories in her life, or she's just saying, hey, I found this fun little song. And I know, I think to the public, they're going to say, what is the, what am I paying for? Am I paying for this person to have a fun text interaction? But I think they're arguing that it's the human side of this that is what is going to make the difference. Because, you know, you know, Lanya got a bed in the Navigation Center, which is a comprehensive homeless shelter here in October. Now she's living with her girlfriend, but she's still, and we couldn't really get into this as much in the story as I would have liked. She She's really struggling to do those things that you and I consider everyday things. Doing regular laundry, making the bed, um, learning what to do with her time. That is a huge thing when you've sort of been on the streets and in survival mode on the time and now you have shelter. How do you spend your days? And so she's still working with the vital occupational therapist on those kinds of things. So, but in her case, you know, they would say real success in the sense that A, you know, she's, she's, their trust has been formed and she's mm-hmm. working with them. Two, or B, she said yes to medication and that's helping her, it sounds like. And C, she's in shelter rather than on the street. Uh, oh, and, and she went into the shelter and then now she's housed. With her girlfriend, right, right, right. Right. So those were all sort of, they would say, our successes. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you say she's also, she's still, it's not like she's not still struggling with various things. Right. And she's she's nervous, according to her case managers told me about the prospect of being housed herself. In other words, getting her own apartment, that that is a very daunting thing for her. And she's not really ready for that. I think that represents a lot of different things. So, I mean, this is a long journey. And zooming back out, I sure. mean, you 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 focused on this program because of the the big debate in part going on now about sure. you know people who are cycling in and out of the, the system. It sounds like it it's somewhat effective. How how big is the program though? Because I think the point you made is it's not very large. It doesn't reach mm-hmm. a lot of people. I think you said what is there sixty? Sixty people. It's a rolling program. So if someone were to right. drop out, someone and, else. And how much in. does it cost? And is there an idea that this, if 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 this were expanded or funded better, that it might be one of the solutions that people are out there looking for? Sure. Um, this past year or this current year, um, it's costing a million dollars. So it's not. I hate to say it's not cheap because what's it's it's relative to what, right? But it's not. It's not nothing for for sixty people. Um, of course, the you know. Supporters are going to say, well, that's cheaper than what you pay, you know, for, for folks to cycle in and out of the jail. And I mentioned a figure in the story, and I can't remember it, but um, like the exact amount that they were spending, you know, to put someone in jail and to deal with attorney's fees and all of that. And then what's the long term outcome of that? But yes, it is very small. It's in an evaluation phase right now that's supposed to be completed by the end of the year. And if those numbers are positive, I think then maybe you'll see a potential expansion of it. But you know, I think Dan Satterberg himself said in the story, and many others I interviewed said, this cannot be the only solution. This is one type of program. Um, maybe you could expand it, but you're going to need multiple types of programs. Not everybody is at the same sort of acuity level as the folks in the vital program. You know, pe- people need different levels of um or connection to systems. And so maybe this isn't exclusively the answer. It's interesting because I feel like, you know, it's such a issues the folks are in vital are dealing with and and related issues around homelessness and the criminal justice system are such big problems that when something looks good, people sort of gravitate towards it and want to grab it and say, this is it, this is it. But they're saying this, this can't be it on its own. It has to be one of many different things. Right, right. And of course, the big political brawl right now that's been in the news, it, it, it surrounds this Seattle is dying situation. And 
we, we had the city attorney, Pete Holmes, in here who was talking about his perspective. He's taken a lot of heat from people who think right. that he's soft on repeat offenders and that, that you know, people aren't being jailed or, or something or prosecuted. And, and the, the newest story is that he and the uh, public defender got together and they went after a municipal court judge, Dan, right, the presiding judge, right? Ed McKenna wrote a public letter saying that he, I guess to boil it down, that he was sort of grandstanding and trying to get them to to come forward with, with harsher sentencing recommendations right. so that, you know, he didn't have to, to play the heavy or something. And now he's fired back and, you know, said that they're, they're sort of trying to cover for, I guess, their own failings. I mean, Dan, you know, this, this weighs into this same situation, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, Pete Holmes and Anita Condelwall, Condelwall who's the um, director of the Department of Public Defense, so the head public defender for the city in the city, in uh, the county, you know, they would kind of say that this letter they wrote about Judge McKenna's conduct, you know, was really about his conduct that he was getting out of his judge role, impartial judge role, and sort of trying to encourage prosecutors to recommend the certain types of sentences. And the fact that he, they would say that he, or their allegations are that he, you know, sort of played politics with and made a spectacle out of a particular sentencing of a many time repeat offender. Uh, and they would say, you know, that's what it's about. It's about his conduct. But really the backdrop for it is this issue and, and the politics of it because McKenna has a certain view and, and I won't try to represent it perfectly, you know, and put words in his mouth, but he has a certain view is a little bit more hard line relative to Holmes and Condell Wall on what to do about these kind of folks and how they should be dealt with and and how much jail time they should get. I mean, I think he said, and he would agree that, you know, more services are needed, but they're much more focused on sort of front end and early intervention programs. And he's, it seems like, been more focused on, you know, if someone's violated their probation a bunch of times, we just maybe sometimes have to keep them in jail to protect the public. And so there's a there's a sort of political and philosophical argument going on between this judge and some other people in the city and w- with this prosecutor and this public defender. And, and Viana, I mean, in your reporting, what do you make of, I mean, at some point, obviously people are arrested all the time, as you, as you pointed out at the start of your story. Does, does your reporting or does the research show that, that jail is just uh, completely ineffective in what, breaking the cycle, regardless of what we might think about whether somebody should be punished for, you know, a particular offense? I don't, I think a lot of hopefully being a better reporter is admitting what you don't know. And I feel like I am just beginning to educate myself about sort of the bigger body of research about, you know, what is effective, what isn't effective. So I want to say that out front. Um, I'll say for a lot of the people in this program, repeated arrest was not working. Um, I mean, that is very clear. Now, could there be potentially, which I think is part of the debate, like interventions while in, not what well, vital is an intervention while in jail, but, you know, treatment while in jail, right? That's a discussion. Um, uh, the county is planning to expand uh, buprenorphine treatment in the jails. The county already administers buprenorphine for folks who are already on it um, when they come into the jail, but they're planning to expand or they hope to do a program where they can start administering it for people for the first time in the jails. So maybe there's an argument that that kind of treatment for folks who have longer sentences 
could be effective, right? But, you know, another thing I'd remind folks is that a lot of the things that Lanya or folks like her were arrested for are misdemeanors. I mean, those carry a particular sentence. And I know I think part of the debate is if if you're committing them over and over, do you then sort of stack it and make more people like, quote, more accountable? But I, I just don't know that that is going to change your outcomes. All right. So these are complicated cases. I think one of the problems that's been going on maybe is everyone thinks that they know the one simple solution. I actually appreciate when you say, and I say the same thing all the time, like, I don't know the absolute solution to this, but I think a great thing is happening at the Seattle Times. I'm biased, you know, the our Project <laughs> Homeless team. Um, and for people who don't know about that, that's that's a grant-funded kind of reporting project that we've been yeah. relying on more as other s- sources of revenue are, are drying up. We've just launched an investigative fund, too. You can go and contribute to that if you want at seattletimes.com. But, Vianna, please, could you, please do yeah, that. Yeah, please. It, it, will, it will help more sort of deep reporting from thoughtful you know, reporters looking at, at cases like the one that you looked at. But explain a little bit at, about what Project Homeless is briefly and kind of what your, what your focus is right now. I think you started to talk about it a little bit at the start of the, our conversation. Sure. Um, Project Homeless is one of three grant-funded um, initiatives reporting teams at the Seattle Times. Uh, we launched in fall of 2017, which is when I joined the paper and moved to this fine city. Um, and we're a four-person team, editor, two full-time reporters, and one part-time reporter, part-time engagement editor who's sort of doing doing community events. Uh, we have coffee with Project Homeless where folks in the community come talk to us and ask their questions. We do speakers' events. One's coming up in early June, Ignite Project Homeless. Please go. And the idea is we're a solutions-based team, and Seattle Times is really... I'm invested in solutions journalism, uh, which is trying to look at problems and not just expose problems, but also show, are there other communities, other agencies in other places who have done a better job or an innovative job looking at how to solve this issue? So example, Seattle has really struggled with how to deal with vehicular homelessness. So I wrote about that last year, and then I went to San Diego and Santa Barbara, California to look at their vehicle homeless programs that seem to have had a little bit more success, or certainly they've sustained themselves longer than Seattle's um, safe lot, safe vehicle programs. So that's an example of what we do. Um, We have not solved homelessness, um, even though that's sort of our mission, I guess. I think that is, I really don't like the word solved. Um, I don't think you solve something like this. I think you hopefully improve um, and you um, illuminate as far as reporting goes. Um, and what we're trying to focus on this year, last year, I think, was a lot of table setting, which is here's the scope of the problem. We've had homelessness coverage. Um, Dan has done some great reporting on homelessness. We just hadn't had a whole team um, before this. So um, this year, we're trying to focus on what are, the again, the pipelines into homelessness. We've written about the foster care system because it's a huge pipeline into homelessness. We're going to criminal justice and hope to continue doing that and just looking at what are the upstream causes that are leading people to be in the situation um, because they don't just start there. Great. Well, and you guys are doing great work, and so we really appreciate it. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's all for episode 106 of The Overcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guests, Viana Dabla, and uh, thanks to KNKX for having us in the studio to record. If you support the independent, locally-owned journalism that makes this podcast possible, please visit seattletimes.com backslash support and look at uh, subscription options. 
You can reach us on Twitter at dbeekman at Jim underscore Bruner. You can send us the email at cltimesovercast at gmail.com. Get us wherever you get your podcast. And until next week, have a cloudy day. 